Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and with me today I have legendary pre-war Alfa restorer Jim Stokes. Good afternoon, Jim. Good afternoon. So we normally start this with a bit of history, but I think for, for the benefit of, of some of our members and some of the listeners to the podcast, it'd probably be good just to get a, a quick overview of, of the business as it currently stands. What you're probably best known for is your uh, pre-war alpha restoration, but there's a bit more to the business than that, isn't there? That's right. Yeah. Yes, we are known for pre-war Alfa Romeo stuff, but to be able to do that, we have had to basically build a company that is capable of doing virtually every part of the restoration that you would need. So that includes the machine shop, um, work for that, like that, the body shop, uh, any chassis work, and we also do transmissions, rebuild engines, and everything else. In reality, we can build whole cars or restore whole cars. And the only thing we don't actually tend to do in-house, although we can do a bit of it, is painting vehicles. And the reason for that is because we would prefer to use cellulose paints for the cars that we do. And now it's becoming very difficult to do that. You have to use water-based paints, which really don't look right on pre-war cars. We're going to focus on on alphas in, in the rest of the podcast, but I think the business goes a bit beyond that as well, doesn't it? Oh, yes, it does. I mean, we're at this very moment in time, we're doing uh, a couple of millers at the moment, pre-war early millers, which we're doing. We do Lancias. We were responsible for the Lancia D50s and the Lancia Ferraris. We've done those. And we've done all kinds of things like the Botticella, which we did one of those, and Sharknose Ferraris, and even Cunningham C2 and C4R cars as well. And some post-war stuff as well? Yeah, and the post-war stuff, we do get involved a lot more of that in our classics division. Uh, where we will deal with with much newer, up to some quite new alphas, to be honest. But we do cover the whole spectrum. We do everything. And by by quite new, are we talking 50s, 60s, 90s, 2000s? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, we, we have cars. We have cars, you know, quite late, you know, things that are four, five, six years old. Okay. So I guess the, the logical question, having talked about what you do now, is is how did you get into that business? It, it's a bit of a niche pre-war Alpha restoration. Yeah, it was a it was a funny thing because the guy that I started working for uh, when I first did my apprenticeship and I started that in 1970 had a big collection of cars that he, that he had, and my apprenticeship was basically working going to college and night school at the beginning of the week and then going away and working with restorers around the country that were doing different projects for us and learning my learning my skills through that. And as we got bigger and bigger and did more things we had more stuff coming back in house and we started started doing things like uh, 60 2500s and stuff like that in house and then when the boss I was working for at that time stopped doing what he was doing in 1981 I started my own business and then because I'd got a name for doing already started to do some Alfa Romeo stuff it just started coming to me and it just sort of got more and more <laughs> and and there's a yeah, there's a there's a bit of a step up between fettling a car that's that's mostly complete and building complete six E and eight C engines. How how did that evolution happen? Well, that was one of those that was one of those things that was quite strange because obviously when you're restoring cars and you're coming across these and there was uh, a lot of problems on the eight C two point threes with things like cylinder heads and cylinder blocks. And there were people making these components already, and I bought several of them from different places. And I'm looking at these thinking, you know, this is not the quality that I need to be working with. This is not what reflects what I do and how I do it. 
So I started to reproduce cylinder heads and cylinder blocks because I was just not happy with what was available in the market at the time. And it sort of snowballed from there to the point where, well, hang on a minute, we actually have made enough bits to build whole engines. And it sort of came came along with that. And, and how big a part of the the business is that now? Are, are you supplying engines to people who are doing their own restorations? Yeah, we've, we've well, for the HC 2.3 engines, considering they only made 188 cars, we've manufactured 60-odd engines. <laughs> um, so virtually everything out there that is now running HC 2.3 engines that's being used has nearly, nearly all got our engines, and we can only put our fingers on a... a, a very small handful of cars that are not, you know, that that are not out there, you know, racing and are not real cars, as it were, you know. And and that's, I, I guess, is a big a big issue in the or issue is is issue the right word? It's a big source of discussion in the in the pre-war world as to what is a real car. Um, <laughs> what, what what's the what's the smallest starting point you've had for something that's ended up as a real as a, a complete car? <laughs> that's a good question. Well. Not an Alfa Romeo, but close family connection. The shark nose Ferrari that we did—that uh, was quite interesting because the the uh, the car that we were doing, which was a, a recreation of Olivia Jean de Bien's 1961 Spa car in yellow, um, was the guy that asked me to do that job. Said, "Well, let's see how many bits we can find, and if we can't find anything, we'll make the lot." You know, and uh, so the first year of that project was spent doing nothing else except collecting information, photographs, drawings, anything we could get our hands on, and any parts. And uh, that was an in- that was a very interesting situation with that because we got with a crankcase because it was a rear engine V6 engine. All the original engines, two four six engines, were front engines. With um, without the bell housing mounting for the transaxle unit, and we got as far as as borrowing a pattern and modifying a pattern to actually make a crankcase with this dimension pieces on it. To discover that all of a sudden we found a real one, and then we went and bought that. So I mean, it's a case of you know just looking, and and it was a big exercise, but it is. I mean, we will build a car from fresh air if necessary. You know, in your mind, where does where does the line cross between a, a recreation and a restoration? I well, mean, it, it used to be it used to be three out of five. So if you had three components, engine, gearbox, axle, front axle, rear axle, that sort of thing, you know, was basically if you had three of the original components, then, you know, you, you were sort of, you, you know, you were on a good way to actually recreating a vehicle. But unfortunately, in some of these cases, some of these parts have got spread to the seven winds, and it's very difficult to actually get them all back. But if you are rebuilding, recreating a car, if you have its original engine, its original gearbox, if you haven't got its original axle, but it is an original manufactured alpha axle of period, and a lot of those other parts, then I feel that you know you have a, a pretty good handle on it. And that's exactly what we did with the Lancia D50s. We had engines, transmissions, some other parts. And Lancia were very good with all the information they gave us. So, I mean, you're recreating a vehicle, whether it be an Alpha or a Lancia, that the public would not see, not hear a lot of these unusual vehicles. And it's really nice to get them out there so people can actually see what they were like. And I, I guess you, you still see stories of of cars being found that were either missing for a long time or in or in some cases unknown, yeah. Um, but turn out to be to be genuine cars. How how good was the pre war record keeping? 
<laughs> well, Alfa Romeo didn't do too badly until we sort of messed things up during the Second World War. You know, so which is a reasonable excuse. Yes, it is. Yes, it is a reasonable excuse. But yes, it is quite difficult. Obviously, Simon Moore has done a phenomenal job with the stuff that he has done, and you have to take your hats off to him. The man has done a fantastic job uh, with the archive information that he has managed to get. But you know, you you can never say never with these situations because there is always going to be, you know, oh, that's written in stone. That's exactly what it was like. Oh, hang on a minute! A piece of information has come to the surface that's just thrown that out. So, yeah, uh, it, it, you can never say you've got all the information. And race cars were race cars even then, where everything was changed. Yeah, and and I guess yeah, it's inevitable as a race team, you're going to have more than enough components available to build additional cars, just because you need to have that level of spares for the cars you're running. Yeah, that's right. You know, and also, I mean, the, the, I, I think the Italians were quite good at moving chassis numbers around and things like that so they didn't have to change the carnet paperwork when they were traveling around race meetings and stuff like that so following some of the information was actually quite difficult so I, on that subject over the the years since you started in this business what what's the most challenging project you've done oh that's a good one um Obviously, when I first did that, when I did the very first 158 Alpha that we did, when I was actually with Mike Sparkin in the boardroom of Alpha Romeo in 1986, uh, when the deal was done to swap the Le Mans Coupe um, for the remnants of the 158 Alpha that we built for him, that was, I thought, at the time I was doing that, because you have to turn the clock back a little bit. I mean, at that particular time, I only had three other employees and I was working from a building, you know, alongside my Victorian um, school. So that was a whole different ball game to the 54 odd people that I've got now with every facility under the sun, which I've got to my fingertips. So the challenge of doing that between 1986 and 1989 was uh, was incredible. And I thought at that particular time, there is no way that I would ever, ever be able to do another one. And the facilities question is an interesting one. So I, I know from from looking at your website and stuff that you've got you know some some cutting edge kit in the business. Yeah. Do you have a a line that you draw in terms of of the techniques you use to recreate parts for pre war cars, or is it just whatever is the best technology, even if that's very different from what was used in period? Uh, no, I mean, uh, the the one things that we do get involved with, I mean, yes, we do use 3D printing and things like that, which obviously is is very vogue at the moment. But we use it in a, in a slightly different way because we don't really get involved in 3D printing components. What I would prefer to do was use, say, for instance, you've got a, an engine that's had a, a rod out the side or something like that, and you want to, to manufacture a piece of, of material that will fit into where that hole in the crankcase is. So what we will do is we will design that on the very latest SolidWorks CAD, CAD equipment. We will then export that and have that printed um, as a nylon model so that we can check the fit of that component into the side of the aluminium crankcase or whatever. And once we've done that and we're happy that we've tweaked the shape that we're producing, then what we will do is we will source a billet material that is of the same specification as the crankcase, and then we will make that component from solid. We don't normally cast things like that because 
usually cost and it's not necessary when you've got as much information as you have you can actually make it from billet material and distress it and then you have something that is a is a very very good repair and um, pretty much identical to what you had to start off with. And would you would you CNC mill that component or that part to fit in the hole, or would you do that by hand? No, 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 no. We got three, four, and five axis CNC machines. And once you've already once you've already made the model, you've already got the program yeah. there. So all you have to do is use uh, CamWorks, which is basically a, a cutter path technology, and that will produce the item that you need. And would you rule out? 3d metal printing when it gets to the point where oh, no, it no, can no, do no. the job well we've we have we have experimented with it we actually the first bit that we did was on a maserati inlet manifolding and just discovered how porous the stuff is right but it has it, it had the technology is moving all the time but um i cannot see any time in the near future that I'd, i would ever consider buying any of that equipment because it's developing so fast it's much easier to buy in that technology i prefer to stick with buying new cnc machines and things which uh, have a much longer life and they don't get made redundant so quickly yeah so it talks about the the most challenging project what's the one that's that's maybe giving you the most satisfaction or you've you've enjoyed the most i guess you go back to the same job the 158 alpha again <laughs> you know because you know to be involved with rebuilding a car that you know out of 55 starts had 47 wins and 96 placings you know in period and producing the sort of 425 horsepower from 1500 cc 190 miles an hour and sort of you know 3.2 bars of boost you know, to be able to be given the opportunity of doing that. And uh, I mean, when I did the first car, we finished it in 1989 and, and we took it to um, Scudiera du Portello meeting at, at, um, at Monza in, in the September and um, of that year. Uh, and we ran the car for the museum and they were a bit perplexed because um, they knew the car had gone, but they, when it got it back, they did not expect it to come back looking and sounding quite like it did. And and there was a little bit of, um, I say, jealousy. They they weren't overly happy that um, that it had gone to England and come back looking like that. But the following weekend, we went to Claremore Ferrand with the car and uh, with Mike Sparkin driving it, and uh, we had lunch with Fangio and his brother, and he sat there and. And said that the car was uh, was you know better now than it ever looked when they raced them in period. But I mean, so as a vehicle to to meet people like that and do do meetings like that, this industry and this job for me has been phenomenal. And I guess you you could argue that all all pre-war alphas are important in their own right because there were so many so few of them. No, that's um, but right. that, that one was somewhat more important than most. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it was iconic. We're actually doing at this very moment in time because they stopped racing the 158 in the end of 51, um, 158, 159. And then Alfa Romeo were going to go on to a flat 12 um, with 12 Delorto carburetors and four-wheel drive, which is a 160, that they were proposing to race in 1954. And at this very moment in time, we are actually involved not doing the four-wheel drive version, unfortunately, but we are involved in rebuilding the engine for the 160 and putting it into a, a vehicle that is purported to have been used in period for the car to be or the engine to be tested. Sounds like a good project. What's the um, what's the delivery date for that one? Well, uh, we're about halfway through it, so I would I would hope before this time next year that will be out making some glorious noise. 
Talking of being out and, and making glorious noise, we met at the uh, the Goodwood Revival a couple of weeks ago. We did. Um, where you had a, a, a 1.5 out. Tell, tell us a little bit about that car, because a lot of people will have seen that car over the weekend. Right. Okay. Well, that would say that's the second one that, uh, that we've done. And having thought we'd never do more than one, um, <laughs> that was a bit of a surprise. But about eight, nine years ago, I had two phone calls on the same day. Uh, from two different people saying, Jim, we know of a big pile of uh, 158 parts in Italy that could be bought. And basically, you're the only guy that's actually dealt with one of these cars. You know, you ought to have a look at it. You know, so you think, really? Okay. So um, <clears throat> so I phoned both parties up and spoke to them to find out what it was. And dealing with Italy and stuff like that can be quite tricky. Um, and there was a lot of money involved in buying these parts. So I'm thinking, how am I going to handle this? So I told both parties that I was actually um, interested um, and could both parties send me photographs and information of what was available. So um, that's what transpired. Um, to cut a long story short, I was getting messages from one party saying somebody else is interested in this, but the other party was me. <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure that what I was getting was what was on the photographs. And basically what had happened is uh, the early 90s, because we were there in 86 too, and we finished in 89 with the first car. Um, but in the early 90s, they were starting to wind down Porcello factory. And when we had picked up all the parts for the first car, and that was interesting because I was examining it for Mike in, in the script uh, below, in, in, in all the catacombs where all the parts were stored. And I was looking at the engine in the car and I said to Mike, this, this, the blocks and this are no good. We need to do something about this. And, and then we were offered, oh, you better take this other spare engine. So we ended up with two engines for the first car, which was actually very good for the second car, um, which so that, that was quite interesting. So, But what happened in the early 90s where they started to clear the, all the crypt and everything out, somebody very cleverly actually knew exactly what they were doing and they picked up what would transpire to be a complete kit virtually, apart from the bodywork and some chassis parts, of a 158, 159 car. There was parts to build both versions. And they had collected all these pieces together and whether they had bought them at scrap, whether they had spirited them away in their lunchboxes or whatever, I don't know. But I started to get sent photographs of a huge collection of 158, 159 parts, which, of course, I could identify easily, um, all spread out in this courtyard somewhere in Italy. And there was just acres of it. Um, so everything was there but the basemento, the crankcase. So... I negotiated a deal to buy these things, and that was a whole different ball game too because they wanted to be paid in euros. They didn't want cash. They wanted cash. They didn't want uh, didn't want bank transfers. And and I had to enrol the help of a restorer in on the continent that spoke fluent Italian to help me out with that and collect parts and pay money. And it was that was uh, that was <laughs> a bit of a clandestine kind of operation, but we managed it. <laughs> And we had that lot delivered back. But then I have got all these pieces to build this second car. And I didn't have a crankcase. And I wanted, obviously, to have an original crankcase and stuff like that. So, But what we had done with um, the first engine, the first car, when we finished building the first engine, I built up the parts from the spare engine as a display motor. And it went onto one of the original stands that they'd used in the museum, which the engine had come on. 
And subsequently, that had been sold and it went to America and then it went around the world a bit. And then it ended up back with Lord Bamford, um, who happens to be a client of ours. So I basically phoned him up and I said I wanted to buy the engine, <laughs> which, was a, which was a bit cheeky, you know. And he ummed and ahed. And then after a little bit of dialogue, he said, well, make me an offer. Well, that's quite difficult to make a billionaire an offer. <laughs> But by the same token, he's a very lovely guy and very helpful, and he obviously loves his classic cars. And we we struck a deal. So then I ended up acquiring all the parts I basically needed to to construct the car. But just to go back a little tiny bit, I was asked um, a few months before if I was interested in buying a lot of drawings from Fousey after Fousey had died. Um, uh, his family were disposing of a lot of the drawings and information that he had. So I was offered a lot of Alfa Romeo 158 stuff. And of course, I'm thinking at the time, well, I loved, I'd love to own them. They were asking quite a lot of money for them. But, you know, I have no use for them. I did have a lot of drawings because Alfa Romeo with Mike Sparkin and, and Giotti, the Alfa team manager, had given us a lot of information when we built the first car. But I didn't have everything. So... At the time, it would have been lovely to to buy those drawings, but I didn't I didn't need them, so I didn't. Subsequently, we get the projects. So I'm thinking, bugger, you know, <laughs> I should have bought the drawings. So I retract, and I actually managed to borrow the drawings back and copy them for uh, uh, not as much as the guy had paid to buy them. So we got the information in the end. So then I had every part of the jigsaw puzzle to build the car. Then the last part of the equation was well. I've now spent all my working capital on um, on buying all these parts. I need one of my customers to want this car very badly. So, <laughs> so what I did was Peter Peter Giddings is a customer a customer of ours, and obviously an Alfa Romeo racer from English guy living in America. If you if you know the guy, but and he had been he had desperately been trying to buy the first car, and it just didn't happen. So, and as he was a customer of ours, I just pinged him a one-liner email, basically saying, Peter, if I could build your 158 Alpha, what would you say? And it came back from Brazil, where he was at the time. Yes. And that was it. So the seed was sown and the rest of it, as they basically say, is history. And the car, as I understand it, had been to the States with Peter and then came back again this, this year, last year? Yes, well, what happened was we we had built the car, we launched it. Um, the first time it was seen in public was was done at Retromobile about four years ago. Uh, but unfortunately, at that particular time, Peter, who was suffering uh, from cancer, uh, wasn't fit enough to drive the car and, and, and subsequently never did actually get to drive the car, which was very sad. But he did sit in the car. We did. I mean, he did come over to Paris for the show. And he met a lot of his friends over there, and it was a it was a really good swan song, to be honest. Yeah, it was beautiful, um, and we were we were very happy that we could have the car in our stand and and display it and have him there with it. And what happened is Judy, his wife, had a big memorial race meeting basically at, at Sonoma Raceway in California. Um, so we uh, we sent the car over. I sent the car over with a couple of my mechanics to run the car. And one of his best mates, Peter Greenfield, drove the car. And Peter is also another Alfa Romeo um, aficionado. And he subsequently bought the car. 
He ran it over there for a little while, did struggle a little bit to get to grips with it in respect of, I mean, he has got some modern Ferraris. He's got some, he's got some super stuff. He's a very serious collector and a very lovely guy. And so the car came back to us for us to sort it out um, so that he could run it to, at the revival this year. And um, the car is staying with us now, we, we believe, from what Peter's told us, um, so that uh, he's already got the entry form for Monaco next year, which will be awesome. Brilliant. So you talked about the flat 12. Any yeah. any other interesting projects on the go that we should be looking out for? Alfa Romeo-wise, we are talking about some stuff at the moment, but unfortunately it's under wraps. But it is, it's in the same vein as the 158. So um, some very, very interesting, um, those kind of projects. I mean, the Miller stuff that we're doing at the moment, which is, um, is really good. Uh, we're doing some, say, some um, some very early Indy Indy car winning, Indy five hundred winning car stuff at the moment. So we're doing stuff like that. But to uh, to make all that lot better, we're in the process of installing the very latest state of the art engine dyno, which um, we are going to be uh, getting on stream within the next three or four weeks. So we'll be doing, able to do every part of our testing in house. And is there anything that you would love to do that you haven't done? Any any cars out there or any models that you've you've not worked on? Go. Oh, I mean, I love the back cars. I mean, I know they're 1900s under the skin, but I just think they are just such wonderful design exercises because Alfa Romeo was very good at producing like sprint specials and little things like that. Yeah. You know, cars that are very well, easy on the eye, you know, I mean, I have a little uh, little 1300cc Spider Veloci. Um, it's one of the very last cars that were made in 1962 um, of that model. And it's just, I just think that Alpha got it right. They just do some super stuff. I mean, it has been, for me, it has been the most amazing journey working in this industry now for 50-odd years. Um, and the way that we've managed to build it up um, from a one-man business uh, you know, to um, a group of companies covering, you know, so many different disciplines. Um, we have apprentices in every department. You know, we're training young lads up. One of the reasons for the dyno is to go towards synthetic fuels and gases and other things that are potentially going to be used to keep internal combustion engines running. Because I personally don't think that electric power is necessary all the answers we've had 120 years of internal combustion engine development and to throw that away when you can burn you know sort of carbon free gases through these engines and still get the performance from them that you that you get with petrol um, i think is being a little bit short-sighted by the likes of ford and possibly volvo and people like that saying they're going to stop production of modern car modern com internal combustion engines when you know the likes of lord bamford is looking very closely at other ways of of powering his his digger fleets um using hydrogen and I think there there are there are other problems, aren't there, with large vehicles in terms of of energy density and batteries and the amount of weight of batteries you need to carry and the restrictions that has on on load capacity and stuff. So I think oh, they will yeah, definitely be around a lot longer. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I you're not going to supersede a very strong turbocharged diesel engine very easily. Not with. I mean, you just think about the guys screaming across Australia with road trains and things like that. You know, there is no way that they can do that electrically. Okay, they got sunshine, but that's not going to help them very much with trucks those sizes. 
you know, with solar panels. So I think I think the world will wake up to the use of, of hydrogen gas and things like that because, I mean, it's all very well with wind generation and stuff like that, but, you know, when the electricity isn't needed, then you have to switch them off. But why not use that electricity to produce hydrogen, which is a, which is a substance that can be stored where uh, on-grid electricity can't be put into batteries the size that you would need. I guess the other the other question about the future. I mean, you you've been involved since the seventies. You've also been involved in you know the period before that in terms of of alpha history. So you, you're as as aware as anybody of the changes that have happened to the company in the the 111 years coming up 112 years that that alpha has yeah. been around yeah. what are your what are your thoughts on the on the future and and the the current organization what they should be doing what they are doing oh that's a very difficult one isn't it it's a very difficult one the trouble is when when marks get absorbed into other companies and other and other setups it all becomes a little bit you lo- i think you lose a little bit of the identity of the of the actual uh, what is the main core how the cars are but unfortunately from a production point of view and things like that it has to be done the way people are going and the problem now i think is when you're trying to design a car and it has to meet certain criteria and you feed that criteria into a computer it spits out the shape of a car which is you know change the badge and off it goes and i think there's an awful lot of that unfortunately alpha still do manage to to put their stamp on these things but i think in today's today's climate that's very difficult so do you think i mean we are currently down to two models and i know they've just announced a new model every year until 2027 i think they announced today well do you think that's enough to save the brand or do you think that alpha is is at risk in in the the new stellantis empire <sighs> yes I think there is always an element of risk when, in something like that. It will be interesting to see exactly what these new models are going to look like and whether they're going to venture into electric in a big way or anything like that, like everybody else is trying to do. <laughs> so that's a difficult question. It is a difficult question. I mean, we all love Alfa Romeo and we would hate to see it annexed but i think there's always that risk isn't there well i think that was the the other part of the announcement i think it's a new model every year until 2027 and then everything from 2027 as things stand will be all electric so i guess that that gives you what 10 15 years of some internal combustion engine alphas still out there and and being relatively new well, we have, and then we have to try and persuade them that perhaps that's not the avenue that they need to go down <laughs> yeah perhaps well, and perhaps- to be fair they yeah they're being they're being pushed back down that avenue by by legislation and yes of course and other things it's uh it's, it's probably it, it not their first choice no i'm sure it's not because you know that's not how alphas have been forever is it you know there's nothing more evo- evocative than the sound of an Alfa Romeo when it's wound up properly, is there? And I, I think I know the answer to this, but what, what's your view on the the growing industry of of rebuilding classic cars with electric propulsion? Yeah, it's it's um, it's a nice idea. Uh, funny enough, I actually went to see a company in London uh, a little over a year ago 
uh, it was it was electric London Electric Car Company, and they were they needed a, a gearbox modification because we 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 manufacture so many different things for the automotive industry, including gearboxes and things. And this particular one of our customers was having a vehicle done by this company. And um, and they were converting everything that they could get their hands on with from minis to Land Rovers to Morris Thousands. And, and this particular one was a taxi that they they were converting for him. And, you know, what it was quite amusing, really, because we went up there to see these people and the guy was very enthusiastic. And he said, you know, I'll take you around the block in my Morris Thousand so you can see what it goes like. So, yeah, so we did that, which was good. And he said, I'd love to come and see your facility. And I said, yeah, well, you're welcome to come down any time. And we were on the south coast near, near uh, Chichester and um, Portsmouth. And so I said to him, well, it's Morris Thousand. What's the range? And he said, oh, it does 40 miles. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking it's going to be a three-day trip, you know, <laughs> to come down and see us. So, and the same thing with putting electric engines in minis and things. There's just not the space to put the batteries and they get so heavy. So, yeah. <laughs> It it might be, it might be a, it might be VHS and Betamax kind of kind of scenario. If you see what I mean, they could be going slightly down the wrong path, um, but that will in time. Battery technology will obviously improve and stuff like that. But you still have to recharge these things. You've still yeah. got to to generate enough electricity to do that. And you know, wind in the UK. You know, it's working. Sun, it's working, but not spectacularly because we are England. You know, so it's it's a difficult one. I think um, possibly using using tidal flows and wave action, tidal flows especially, because in a thousand years from now you'll still be able to know how much the water's going up and down and when. You know, so that is ways. Although, of although where might have different. changed slightly. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Probably a lot further inland. You know, but, <laughs> but by the same token, you know that is a constant um, where the wind and the sun is not. Yeah, but the the big thing is turning electrical power that's generated like that in a green way into a storable energy source. You know, is the difficult thing, and this is where we. we this is my 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 thing about going back to hydrogen. Yeah, and I guess I guess it does depend a bit on the mark as well, doesn't it? I think there are there are cars out there where you know they they were significant and they were you know maybe interesting. In the way they look or they're engineered but the engines were a bit meh whereas if you did that to an alpha you're taking out the, the oh, you're heart taking of the thing. Out, you're taking out the heart of the car you know because you know even if okay sometimes the build quality of 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 some of the alphas perhaps in the 70s and 80s wasn't quite as good as it could be you know, you still had that wonderful engine technology and the engine designs and the way that things were done, which is the heart of Alfa Romeo. You know, the, the, the drive line, the design and the way that it's all done and the suspension is good. You know, it was a shame that they got caught with the Russian steel and things like that, which didn't help the situation at all. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the heart of an Alfa is its petrol engine or its internal... Pardon me, internal combustion engine. So, um, yeah, it would be a shame to to go fully electric. Yes, you get an amazing amount of performance with all the torque at none of the revs, but you lose the soul, and, and yeah. you can't afford to do that. Last last question, I think, because kind of inspired by by that comment, I, 
there's a company in Italy that's that's producing a a 105 coupe with a electric power plant um, uh-huh. who who've also just announced that they're putting the V6 from the the current Giulia Quadrifoglio in a in a 105 just just your thoughts on the whole resto mod scene so take taking a classic car and and not just building it the way it was built but better so hand hand building everything yeah, sure. making sure the tolerances are great but but taking it beyond what alpha ever intended and you know thinking of things like the the alpha holics cars and sure which which outwardly look exactly like they did in period but actually in uh, under the skin there's a huge amount of changes yeah i there is a market for it. I mean, obviously, people always, I mean, it's the same with our HCL for engines, to be honest. You know, nobody wants a 2.3. They all want 2.6s. They all want to go quicker. They all want to stop easier. But I think you also have to look a little bit into inside what would Alpha have done in period? Would they have done that? I did have a project, which at the moment I had to stop it um, a few years back, but I I was actively involved in doing a project myself, which was, okay, what would Alfa Romeo have done if they had continued with a 2900B up to, say, mid-50s? How would they have, what would they have done? What would they have evolved? How would they have changed it? And I actually did spend quite a lot of time and effort doing that. And I think what Alphaholics and people like that are doing is the same sort of thing, basically. You know, what would Alpha done have done if they'd continued with this model? How would they have evolved? How would they have improved it? As provide if you're using original body shells and things like that, which I know some people don't, if you don't modify any of the original fabric of the vehicle and just make the parts in effect, let's say bolt-ons, then you have always that path back. To yeah. what the car, what the car was like originally, and that is our philosophy with anything that we do, whether we're using any of our, our improved gearboxes that we have for the eight Cs or seventeen fifties or even two nines, for instance. Everything that we do is reversible, and I think I'd be quite comfortable with people modifying things, changing engines, doing stuff like that, providing they don't cannibalize the donor vehicle, you know, where you've got Thorny Kellen busy take cutting the roofs off a steer off uh, not a steers, I can't remember which model it is, off the Lanciers, and they drop the roofs about an inch and a half and stuff like that. I mean, they're almost hot hot rodding a Lancia, which is really, you know, I mean they do look smart, but by the same token, that's a one-way trip. Yeah. You know, and um, I think that's taking it to a slightly different level from from actually just upgrading it, changing the engine, improving the performance. Um, But providing you don't mess with the original fabric of the vehicle, I think it's I think it's something that is that is um, acceptable. That's been brilliant, Jim. Thanks for your time. Um, Been a pleasure talking to you. And you too, Guy. Thanks very much. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time for another one of our roundtable discussions, looking back at the club's recent general meeting and the conference we held for all the section secretaries and model registrars, as well as looking forward to the classic motor show at the NEC. Episode 44 will be available to download from 1.30pm on the 7th of November from the club's website, YouTube, iTunes, Podbean, and everywhere else good podcasts are found. Until then, stay safe. Stay safe.